2: Dear listener, experience the fashion revolution that is snag and visit snagtights.us today. Welcome to Criminalia, a production of Shondaland Audio
3: in partnership with iHeartRadio. Seeking. Comely widow who owns a large farm in one of the finest districts in Laporte County, Indiana, desires to make the acquaintance of a gentleman equally well-provided, with view of joining fortunes. No replies by letter considered unless sender is willing to follow answer with personal visit. Triflers need not apply. Hello,
4: and welcome to the latest episode of Criminalia, where we've already gotten things started. This season, we are exploring the lives and motivations of some of the most notorious lady poisoners throughout history, whether they considered themselves as comely widows or
3: not. <laughs> I'm Maria Tramarki and I'm Holly Fry. And the comely widow we're talking about today is Belle Gunness, who killed an estimated, and this is crazy, 40 victims and possibly more in Chicago, Illinois and Laporte, Indiana, between eighteen eighty four and nineteen oh eight and then, poof, like Kaiser Sose, she vanished, yeah, I feel like Bell Gunness is
4: one of those topics that if we hadn't included her, there uh, we would be stoned to death in the streets. I feel so um, too. <laughs> like I'm actually <laughs> she's, she's a popular poisoner in history. she's
3: very her story is long, <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
4: So Belle, who picked up the nickname Hell's Belle later in life, was born Brynhild Storteth in November of 1859 in Selbe, Norway. She was the daughter of a stonemason, and the family, which was large, lived on a small farm. By all
3: accounts, Belle had a pretty normal childhood. Yeah, and historians who've studied her life looking for any reason why Belle could and would turn into one of the most prolific killers in the United States, they've found nothing particularly notable in her upbringing that would suggest that she would grow up to be who she grew up to be. There is one story, though, that pops up a lot in her folklore, but no one has been able to solidly confirm or deny it. They just tell it.
4: So this story, which may or may not be true, goes like this. At the age of 18, Belle, at this time still living in Norway, was pregnant. And attending a country dance one evening, she was physically assaulted by a man and she miscarried. The perpetrator, the story goes, was from a wealthy family, and he very likely bribed his way out of the charge, basically got away with this assault.
3: But Belle, it is said, was never the same again. So... Not long after this, she immigrated to America. And at the age of 21, which puts us here at about 1881, uh, she left Norway and she settled in Chicago. Um, Some stories say that her sister had left a few years prior and she just kind of went into the same city that her sister was at. But it's really unconfirmed. She changed her name to Bella Peterson. And for a time, she worked as a domestic.
4: Three years later, Belle married Mads Sorensen, who was also originally from Norway. And just a few years into their marriage, the couple opened a candy shop at the corner of Grand Avenue and Elizabeth Streets in Chicago. Now, this sounds literally and figuratively like kind of a sweet story, but this was an unsuccessful endeavor. And within a year, they had closed their doors for good. And actually, closed is not really an accurate
3: description. (laughs) The shop went up in flames. It's a little bit different. But they turned their bad business luck around. Or at least they tried to. They collected the insurance money, and with it, they bought themselves a house. Now, it has been suggested
4: in several accounts that Bell and Mauds might not have been able to have had biological children of their own. Looking to grow a family, the couple instead opted to adopt and care for foster children. They could not seem to shake
3: that bad luck, though.
4: And this time, it was unfortunately with their kids.
3: So two of their young daughters passed away, both quite unexpectedly. Caroline died in 1896, and Alex, whose name actually may have been Axel, but it's a little difficult to know because reports are differing, passed away in 1898, and the cause of death was reported as acute colitis in both instances. And the symptoms of acute colitis include things like nausea, fever, diarrhea, lower abdominal pain, and they're also symptoms of many forms of poisoning, which is no (laughs) surprise to anyone who has been following this podcast from episode one. So this just seemed like a string of bad luck. And no one was suspicious at the girls' deaths. Uh, The parents collected on the life insurance policies for both kids. Then in 1900,
4: not long after they lost the shop and their two daughters, their home mysteriously burned down. This is
3: really bad luck. But at this point, Belle felt that her husband needed a bigger and better life insurance policy, which, I mean, I don't blame her at this point. She's like, everyone's dying and everything's burning down. So... He took one out, but I I really kind of hate to dwell and say this again, but tragedy again struck. Mods died of heart failure.
4: Curiously, his death happened on the one and only day that his two life insurance policies, the new bigger one and the older smaller one, overlapped. The family doctor listed the cause of death as heart failure, but there was another doctor, and that doctor suspected that mods had been poisoned with strychnine. Huh. We don't want to spoil what's to come, but yes, I think we are all pretty comfortable at this point guessing that that second doctor was probably onto something. Right. Bell's in-laws were suspicious of her, but still no charges were filed and Bell collected $8,500. And it's really hard we always say to extrapolate like the value of money then to what it is now because there are a lot of differing factors that impact that calculation. But roughly it's probably a bit more than $200,000.
3: I mean $8,500 seems like a lot of money in 1900 whether you know we can do the the proper math on it or not. It it sounds right. big. Um so with this money from her husband's life insurance payout, Belle decided to get out of town. She bought a 40 acre farm far from the whispers that were growing around her and her tragic life. In 1902, Belle and her three foster children, Jenny, Myrtle, and Lucy, moved to LaPorte, Indiana. And not long after settling in, she married Peter Gunnis, a fellow widower who also had children. He had two young daughters.
4: But of course, Belle's bad luck followed her to Indiana, it seemed. Just a few days after the wedding, Peter's seven-month-old daughter died unexpectedly while she was in Belle's care. And then just eight months later, Peter also died and under some very, very strange circumstances.
3: Let me describe these very strange circumstances because they're crazy pants. Peter was struck on the back of his head when a sausage grinder fell off a high shelf in the kitchen. Because that's definitely not a typical way to meet one's demise. The coroner, for sure, looked into it. And on top of that, one of Belle's children, Jenny, who was 14, was said to have confided to a classmate that, and I'm quoting her here, my mama killed my papa. She hit him with a meat cleaver and he died. But don't tell a soul. There was a period of time when I I needed to know ICD codes for medicine. And I remember there were so many crazy ones like struck by a duck and, you know, like just just nonsense that you think would never happen. And it made me wonder, like, is there one that says struck on the head with a sausage grinder? Because <laughs>
4: Peter needed it. But when questioned about it, Jenny denied that she said those things, and so this incident was considered a freak accident. Bell was cleared, and she received about $3,000 in insurance money. Again, rough equivalency here, but we're guessing right around fifty grand today. But Peter's brother, very smartly so, decided to take custody of Peter's older daughter.
3: Then shortly after Peter's death, Belle told her neighbors that she had sent Jenny to a finishing school for young girls all the way to the West Coast in Los Angeles, which is not suspicious.
4: Kind of random all, and sudden. Right? Yeah, it just yeah. seems
3: it, it seemed sudden to me. Yes. At this point, after the
4: deaths of two husbands and three children, all of whom had insurance policies that Bell collected on, she had become fairly wealthy from those insurance payouts. She decided to look for a new partner, and she was very practical in her search. (laughs) Practical, like, at the level of the way an employer might fill a job opening.
3: (laughs) So she turned to the personals, and she picked the interest of many men through matrimonial ads that she placed in primarily three different weekly Norwegian language newspapers uh, throughout the Midwest, and she would follow up with sexually suggestive correspondence once a potential suitor got hooked.
4: It's unknown how many men actually corresponded with Bell. However, accounts from her mail carrier suggested it was not unheard of for her to receive as many as eight letters a day from potential suitors.
3: And it wasn't all about romance. In one letter to a potential suitor who was named Carl Peterson, Bell wrote, and I'm going to quote her again here, I have picked out the most respectable and I have decided that yours is such. If you think that you were able in some way to put up $1,000 cash, we can talk matters over personally. I like to think that, like, today it would be like, send me a traveler's check. <laughs> and,
4: right. Know, I mean, Do people still use those? I, have I don't have no know. idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's part of me that's like, I get it. You're being very pragmatic. She certainly
3: had a strict vetting system.
4: Right. Uh, <laughs> Belle's neighbors watched her goings-on, and they whispered as men came knocking at Belle's door. She was often seen going for carriage rides with a different man each Sunday afternoon and always wearing the finest hair and clothing styles. One of her farmhands told the New York Tribune that Belle often concealed the identities of the men who visited the farm. And there was a new man there just about every week. She would introduce them if it came up to anyone who inquired as her cousins.
3: And Belle as it turns out, had a lot of cousins from Kansas, South Dakota, Wisconsin, and the greater Chicago area. (laughs)
4: Very big family.
3: Big family. Uh, (laughs) Well, (laughs) we did mention she came from a large family. (laughs) She did.
4: We are going to stop here and take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Belle's suitors, who were, as it turns out, and I don't think we're giving anything away here, her victims. hey, everybody, it's Holly. Listen, I've been doing stuff on stage since I was a kid, which means that I have been doing my makeup since I was a kid. And I can turn out a look when I need to. But on my day to day, I really like to keep it a little more relaxed and low key. I don't have time for a full face most of the time. But that also means that Thrive Cosmetics can have me covered no matter what I'm doing, whether I'm doing something on stage, like I have an appearance or a live show or I'm just running to the grocery store. Something in their line is perfect. And what I really love and what's important to me is that they are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free. And to me, cruelty-free is very important in the cosmetics I use. I mentioned that I've been doing my makeup for a long time. I've gotten older at <laughs> that time. And one of the things that I've done to refresh my look is switch over to their brilliant eye brighteners and use something like a rose gold shade to really like go all around my eye and then just blend it out and get a daytime smoky look. It makes me look a little more youthful and more refreshed. And it's just easy as pie, and it means that I don't have to mess with a whole ton of products. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at ThriveCosmetics.com slash Criminilia. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash Criminilia for 10% off your first order.
0: Escape to Summer with Victoria's Secret.
4: Your home should be your haven, and everyone wants to feel safe at home. If you travel a lot, it's really important that your home is secure when you're gone and that your pets are also safe. Simply Safe is advanced home security that puts you first. Simply Safe sent me a home security package, and I was really blown away by all the cameras and the quality of them. When I travel, I could check in on my cats anytime, day or night. And I sleep better, knowing that once our alarm is set at night, I know that I'll be alerted if anyone tries to enter the house. Simply Safe has been named in U.S. News and World Report's Best Home Security Systems for five years running. It's also been ranked Best Customer Service in Home Security by Newsweek. By partnering with Simply Safe, I've finally gotten real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Get an exclusive 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafecom slash criminalia. That's simply safe S I M P L I S A F E dot com slash criminalia.
2: Orders. Don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is snag at snagtights.us. Welcome back to Criminalia.
3: Here's where Belle's bad luck begins to look a lot more like murder than tragedy. All right, here
4: is where we start seeing the list of deaths grow beyond Belle's spouses and children. Belle's suitors were, as we said before the break, her next victims. Each of them brought cash when they visited her farm, as she requested, and then each of them disappeared. Potential suitors like John Moe of Minnesota brought a large sum of cash to prove his worth, and then strangely never seen again. More suitors followed. John Moo, Ulla B. Budsberg, and Olaf Lindblom, to name only a few, all went missing in this same pattern.
3: Between 1905 to 1907, there were dozens and dozens of men who knocked on Belle's door. She didn't marry any of them, but none of them were ever seen again after visiting her.
4: In July 1907, Bell hired a new farmhand. That was a man named Ray Lampier. And Ray was a 37-year-old with an unsavory reputation. He was known as a drinker and a gambler and kind of just an all-around slacker. But unexpectedly, he turned out to be a competent carpenter and a really
3: loyal employee to Belle. So she was really pleased by that, and she moved him into her home. And the two began a sexual relationship, but by all accounts, this was not any sort of romance or love. Belle considered Ray too poor to be a real suitor or her partner, but Ray did fall for her. And he began to resent the men who answered her lovelorn ads. And wow, were there a lot of men to be resentful over.
4: (laughs) They just kept showing up and they often were so foolish. They signed over deeds. They handed over bank account numbers in some cases. They wrote checks or they showed up, as she requested, flush with cash and promised to pay for this or that, including even paying for Bell's mortgage And every single one of them was never seen after visiting that farm.
3: Belle, though, would tell her neighbors who asked after these men that it was a sign of their untrustworthiness and that they had abandoned her. She told relatives who inquired about missing men that they had gone elsewhere, maybe back to Norway or off to Chicago. And frankly, there was one instance where I read that she told someone that their brother had gone to Oregon. And I just found that very random. All the while, Bell continued to exchange deeply personal love letters with her potential suitors. Um, but maybe now we should start calling them victims.
4: She developed a long-distance romance with one suitor in particular. This was a 40-something South Dakota wheat farmer and also fellow Norwegian immigrant named Andrew Helgelin. And over a period of about a year and a half or so, Bell
3: sent Andrew upwards
4: of 80 letters.
3: Give or take a letter or two. That is a lot of letters. Um, One letter meant for Andrew was found on his farm and read like so
4: To the dearest friend in the world, no woman in the world is happier than I am. I know that you are now to come to me and be my own. I can tell from your letters that you are the man I want. It does not take one long to tell when to like a person, and you I like better than anyone in the world, I know. Think how we will enjoy each other's company. You, the sweetest man in the whole world. We will be all alone with each other. Can you conceive of anything nicer? I think of you constantly. When I hear your name mentioned, and this is when one of the dear children speaks of you, or I hear myself humming it with the words of an old love song, it is beautiful music to my ears. My heart beats in wild rapture for you, my Andrew. I love you. Come prepared to stay forever. She's good. She is so good at <laughs> this. Good. Like,
3: <laughs> no wonder so many men were coming to her. She's good. So, right,
4: she is excellent at crafting narrative. Yeah. She subtly hits the important words and points that will titillate the reader and think like they they will clearly get her message that she is promising. Oh yeah, like, a really really uh you know exciting romance, even while she's kind of cloaked it in these words of like sweetness and almost demure mm-hmm. like. I'm so excited about you, but clearly they will know exactly what is going to happen. So I copy edited for a long time, and if someone turned this into me as a sample, I would hire them on the spot. So that letter, that
3: that amazingly good letter, uh, got Andrew uh, in January of uh, 1908. So it you know, didn't take very long. Um, he came to visit Belle, uh, not intending to stay forever, but at least for a few weeks. For his his first visit, um, Andrew had brought with him close to $3,000. And Belle and Andrew together went to the local bank to cash that check. Belle wanted it in all cash, despite Andrew and the bank teller suggesting that she keep some in an account as a safety net.
4: Ray, and remember that was her handyman, argued with Belle about Andrew, who he did not want Belle to get married to. So she promptly fired Ray. Andrew, and we would love to say that this was unexpected, but at this point, is it, really? Is it? Yeah. (laughs) Andrew was mysteriously gone the next day. And when he did not return home, his brother
3: naturally grew concerned. Right. So then he found the letters from Bell and doing a little amateur investigating, he learned that Andrew had cashed a large check in LePort. And as far as Belle was concerned, she admitted freely that Andrew had visited her, but that he had also left.
4: But Andrew's brother was not willing to just take that as the answer, and so he actually showed up in Laporte, looking to talk to Belle personally. And alarmed that there may have been foul play, he wanted the farm searched. And then, as all of this was playing out around 4 a.m. on April 28th, 1908... Bell's Farmhouse burned to the ground.
3: Tragedy struck. Again. When we return, well, it wasn't potatoes that were found in the dirt at Bell's
0: Farm. Escape to summer with Victoria's Secret.
2: Come! Orders. don't delay in experiencing the fashion revolution that is snag at SnagTights.us. hey everyone it's ted from consumer cellular the guy in the orange sweater and this is your wake up call if you're paying too much for wireless service you don't have to keep having that nightmare consumer cellular has the same fast reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost so why keep spending more than you have to seriously wake up And call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and
0: 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid and limited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024.
4: Welcome back to Criminalia. We're at the point in Bell Gunnis' story where skeletons come out of the closet. Okay, really, I mean the ground. They
3: came out of the ground. (laughs) Literally, the skeletons are in the ground. (laughs) Now, there's a really interesting thing that Belle did the day before her house burned down that we should talk about. She visited her lawyer, um, and she asked him to draw up her will, leaving everything she owned, firstly, to her children, and according to some accounts, fewer accounts, though. Secondly, to an orphanage in Chicago.
4: While this aspect of drawing up a will isn't necessarily so interesting, this next part is. During her meeting, she was quoted as telling her lawyer, and again, direct quote, I'm afraid he's going to kill me and burn the house. And the he that she's referring to there is her now former handyman and person who
3: fell in unrequited love with her, Ray. She never went to the police about this. She only spoke to her lawyer. But the next thing you know, the LaPorte County Sheriff, Albert Smutzer, was questioning Ray. And Ray denied setting fire to anything. Um, he even asked if Belle and her kids had gotten out of the house safely. Based on one eyewitness account
4: of Ray fleeing the scene of the fire, the former handyman was charged with arson. And because the bodies of three children and one woman, specifically one headless woman, were found in the basement. Crazy. He was also charged with four counts of
3: murder. So initially, that headlessness just, oh my goodness. So initially, (laughs) authorities believed the bodies were those of Belle and her children. Myrtle, who was 11, Lucy, who was 9, and Philip, who was 5 at the time. And why wouldn't you assume that, right? They're the three children and the mother who live in the house. But it was quickly determined that this headless body couldn't actually be Belle. And the most obvious problem was that Belle stood 6 feet tall and weighed about 200 pounds. But the person found in the basement was only about 5'3", up to maybe 5'6", inches in height and weighed about 75 pounds, Um, of course, minus the weight of the head. But the headless person had also been poisoned with strychnine before the fatal fire.
4: So it was also assumed that everyone had been asleep on the second floor when the fire broke out, right? And, like, as the house collapsed and the the floors collapsed, they fell. However, and rather weirdly, the family's piano, which was normally on the first floor of the home, was found directly on top of... Of those four bodies
3: happens all the time. The old piano jump, right? <laughs> there was there was no way not to consider this a murder scene at this point, right? I mean, it could have been previously, but now the sheriff launched an investigation into what was going on. The search of Bell's farm began, and at the time, um, Bell's farm hand was a man named Joe Maxon, and he suggested to the authorities that they start digging for evidence near the pig pen. The sheriff took about a dozen men to Bell's farm to see what they could dig up, literally. And uh, Holly, what'd they find?
4: Well, it's a bit grisly. Yeah.
3: So they found the small bodies
4: of two unidentified children. And then just a few days later, Andrew's body was found, as were about 12 other bodies, along with a variety of body parts. Huh. And they also unearthed the body of Jenny Olson, who had vanished in December of 1906. If you recall, Bell had at the time said that Jenny had gone to school in Los Angeles. Jenny also having been the one who told a schoolmate that her mother had killed her father. With
3: the meat grinder. All of
4: these bodies were found in shallow graves. So a little bit
3: about... Bell was a really strong woman who um, if you want to imagine her um, imagine her as a woman who preferred to wear men's overalls and she did her own pig butchering on the farm and addition in addition to writing all of the letters she wrote and all of that butchering, um, Bell had been spending her money on large wooden trunks as well as digging in her farm's pig pen late at night the late at night, it, you know, I'm not suspicious at all, right? I mean, I always dig at night. <laughs>
4: <laughs> Listen, she's got a busy letter writing and pig butchering schedule. You got to fit it in where you can. Of the bodies that were found, seven were identified pretty quickly. But then there were also all of these unidentified bodies. And these bodies were considered additional victims, though authorities could never prove it. If you have another hour or two to spare, we could share all of these names and the small bits and pieces of their stories that have been pieced together over the years. But ultimately, the bottom line is that Bell's
3: victim list is just really, really long. It actually, if you have it like in a Word document, it scrolls like it's not just on one page. You have to keep going. So we uh, decided not to to talk about the specific victims because of that. But um, primarily because of the crude recovery methods um, at that time, the exact number of individuals that were unearthed on the farm remains kind of still unknown. There could be more. 14 of Bell's victims were eventually, literally pieced together. But there were a number of teeth and bones and There's this one detail that I just really, uh, it's hard to like something in this story, but but I did like this. Watches um, that were found uh, in the ground, Um, in total, her victims are estimated to be at the very, very least. The minimum is 40. The coroner declared Bell dead
4: after dentures found in the debris two weeks later were identified by the local dentist as hers. Curiously, though, these dentures were found intact. They were not at all burned. And that suggested to a lot of people that this was planted evidence.
3: Yeah. So Belle was gone. Right. But according to the former handyman, Ray, she definitely was not dead. Ray, um, and since he lived with her, he seemed to know quite a bit about what happened in her home. Um, He said that Belle murdered her suitors by poisoning their after-dinner coffee with strychnine. And as an aside and a personal note, I am very pleased that it was not arsenic and that we get to talk about a different poison. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Thank you, Belle Gunness. Um, And... While they were in this stupor, she would hit them over the head with her meat cleaver to finish the job. But next, she would bring the body to the basement and butcher it and would distribute its parts among her hogs. Some she would bury. Um, He said that she was very skillful and she skillfully sliced it apart, wrapped it in an oilcloth, and put it in the dirt.
4: And uh, believe it or not... This is actually where things get more disturbing. Even more. According to Ray's account, Belle smothered her children and fled with her money. Ray's estimate was that she had gotten anywhere from $1,000 to $32,000 from each man. Which is amazing. And he was certain that she had taken up a new identity.
3: So while Belle, who would have been about 48 years old at this point, she may or may not have been living a new life. Um, But on May 22nd, 1908, Ray was tried for murder and arson. He pleaded innocent to all of these charges, but he did admit that he had helped Bell bury her victims. His defense hinged on the assertion that the headless body was not Bell's body. So he was found guilty of arson, but he was acquitted of the murder charges.
4: On November 26, 1908, Ray was sentenced to two to 21 years in the state prison in Michigan City, Indiana. He eventually died there of tuberculosis. That was just about a year later. And on his deathbed, Ray confessed to a priest that he had helped Belle escape to a nearby town, and from there she caught a train to Chicago. He confessed that he was the one who set the house on fire as a cover-up and that the headless corpse had been a woman that Bell had hired as a housekeeper. Interestingly, Ray also said in this confession that there was another accomplice, but he never shared that name, and
3: that remains a complete question mark. Right, that's so interesting. I, I, it's nowhere. So, interest in Bell's story, or at least... Ray's account of Bell's story grew nationwide. And for years, and I'd I'd actually be comfortable saying even decades after the fire and her disappearance, there were Bell sightings everywhere around the U.S.,
4: So we have a few of the most interesting examples of these sightings that also kind of show you how varied they can be. Yes. Uh, As late as 1931, Bell was reported to be living in Mississippi, where she supposedly owned quite a bit of real estate
3: and was living her life as a prominent citizen. Another report, and this one is the, the, the most popular theory that you'll hear a lot as part of the story of Bell. Um, It's also from 1931, and it suggests that she may have changed her identity to Esther Carlson. So Esther
4: Carlson is really interesting because Esther kind of came to light when she was arrested in Los Angeles for poisoning a man named August Lindstrom. That was a Norwegian-American gentleman who may have been her boss, and that happened in February 1931, and she did it for the money. Two people who had known Belle claimed that she and Esther were the same woman, and those claims were based on those people having seen a few photographs of Esther. Now, if you've seen older photographs, you know, from the early 1900s, this could be a part of the story that's a little bit squishy. They certainly did not have all the detail we are used to today. A lot of times those photographs, um, you know, diminished over time and lost their their sharpness and clarity, so it's a little uncertain. Esther did absolutely resemble Belle, though. The two were about the same age. And the really curious part of the story (laughs) to me is that there had been no record of Esther before 1908. Uh, Esther died on May 6, 1931, while awaiting trial for that poisoning charge.
3: Just, it's, yeah, I agree with you, though. The no record of Esther before 1908 is curious, We'll see. Um, As recently as 2007. So this is something that people are still today talking about. hundred years later, scientists have tried to link Esther and Bell through DNA. But so far, uh, things have been mostly unsuccessful, mainly because samples have degraded. Uh, Families have been very supportive and have offered their help. But it would seem that Bell has taken her secrets to the grave.
4: But her legacy certainly lives on. There is actually quite a musical and theatrical body of work surrounding Bell and her story. She has been the subject of at least four American musical ballads. amazing. One song, for instance, is entitled "The Battle of Bell Gunness, not the Battle. <laughs> one song, one song, for instance, is entitled "The Ballad of Bell Gunness," and it is sung to the tune of "Love, O Careless Love." And it's been described not so much as a song as a crime report in rhyme. There is also Belle Gunnis, the murder musical. And there was also a movie made about 10 years ago that was called The Gunnis Mystery.
3: You know, so her farm, as well, uh, which has since been nicknamed Murder Farm, uh, has become quite a tourist attraction. uh, And they offer concessions and there are souvenirs for sale. Uh, Belle has even become part of local history. The uh, LaPorte County Historical Society Museum in Indiana has a permanent Belle Gunnis exhibit. So that is the story of Belle. We may never know what happened to her.
4: I was trying to think of a good way to make a drink that um, reflected one of the things that really stood out to me about Belle's story, which is perhaps shockingly, not all the murder, but the way that she shifted her identity over and over, right? Even when she moved to the United States from Norway, she switched over. Then, you know, with any of these men, she went from being, like, very coquettish and sweet to uh-huh. killing them, and then ultimately went from being Belle Gunnis to being possibly Esther.
3: Or Kaiser, things.
4: So I wanted to make a drink that changes its identity as you're drinking <laughs> it. That's fantastic. So So... <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this this is not a difficult drink to make, but you do have to do some prep ahead of time. So first of all, you need an ice cube tray, some cranberry juice, and uh, some pickled jalapenos in an eyedropper. <laughs> I know this sounds ridiculous but stick with me this so, is like a, what a you're scientific gonna
3: do, experiment drink <laughs> <laughs> I'm
4: like, honestly it was so fun to test this one because <laughs> it worked the way i hoped it would and then Always i was like nice. yes um so you fill your your ice cube uh, receptacles halfway up with cranberry juice put that in the freezer and let it set then with like an eye dropper you don't want a lot you're literally all you're getting out of that pickled jalapeno jar is a little bit of juice So you're picking up like three to five drops and putting those into each of the pre-frozen cranberry juice half cubes. Let that freeze for just a little while and then top it up with cranberry and finish your ice cubes. So now you have cranberry ice cubes with a little bit of jalapeno hidden in them. And then... Uh, you're just gonna mix two ounces of vodka. The the actual drink part super easy. So you're gonna mix two ounces of vodka and five ounces of ginger ale, uh, six ounces if you'd like a different, you know, um proportion there. Then you will drop these ice cubes in, and as you are drinking, you first just get this very light ginger ale and vodka drink, and then you get a cranberry drink, and then at the very end you get a
3: stinger. <laughs> you know that drink actually is is very bell right right like Uh, i think you kind of nailed her like at the end you die like
4: (laughs) 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 well and that's the thing too i i always you know and i'm just doing fun experiments Mm -hmm. in the kitchen to get to any of these so like i always want everybody to experiment with their own stuff one you can use you know a different mixer if you like gin and ginger ale that's fine you just want two things that are are going to be impacted by the shift to the cranberry and the the jalapeno. And then the other thing you want to think about is whether or not you are a fast drinker or a slow drinker. <laughs> like if you are a a slower drinker that sips a little at a time, you want to mix your ginger ale and vodka with some regular ice before you add these cranberry jalapeno ice cubes. Oh yeah. Cuz then it'll make them take a little bit longer to to melt and dissolve into your drink and change the flavor. Um, If you are a fast drinker, like I tend to drink my any beverage, not just cocktails, but pretty quickly, so I leave the ice out because then by the time I'm done is right about the right timing. Um, The other thing that I like about a recipe like this is you can completely change it up, right? If you are not, uh, if you don't like to drink, if you're not an alcohol person, you can do this with just ginger ale and the ice cubes. Um, You can also switch it out and use a different juice than cranberry, but I just like the way cranberry kind of mixes in. So, I mean, keep in mind that that finish is not something you're sipping a lot of. You kind of want your last sip or two to have that little bite of jalapeno but not too much so that is my what's your poison for this time and I'm just gonna call it secret identity. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we should call it the Esther Carlson. I think I like that better. I, I kind of like
3: that. I kind of like the Esther Carlson. Yeah, we're Carlson. gonna call
4: it the Esther Carlson. Please don't use it to make anybody go into a stupor so you can do away with them. Oh Please my do gosh, don't
3: put strict nine in Not only it.
4: drink responsibly but serve responsibly. You know, I know there's like an element of surprise people enjoy but I like to let people know what they're in for. <laughs> so, uh, we hope that you are in for uh, a few more episodes about poisoners. We have a few more coming. So you can uh, absolutely join us here next week. If you haven't subscribed yet, absolutely do that on the iHeartRadio app, the Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you listen.